I don't do that with the other ones, but when I first started that program out, I would, I would put the name across the top, then I'd put the first name embedded into the paragraph. And uh, I stopped doing that because I forget to take the other name out. <laughs> I mean, it was working out too well. <laughs> hey, let's look at uh, Psalm, guess which form? 64. 64. Man, we're making progress. We are just going lickety-split. Well, I don't know about lickety-split. Glad, but we're moving. We're moving. Uh, tonight is uh, Psalm 64, and it's about words. And so I named it, or titled it, I should say, Jack, Sticks and Stones, Part 1. Sticks and Stones. And we'll be just dealing with Psalm 64, verse 1. I know uh, Dr. Trevor's going through the book of Psalms in his daily devotional that he has on the radio. And uh, he's way up in a hundred and something or other. And he started long after I did. So he's just kind of condensing everything he does to me. I'm just kind of taking my time. A lot of information in, in these Psalms. And uh, he sticks to the highlights and I stick to the lowlights and the highlights. So I do them all. So. Anyway, by way of introduction here tonight, it doesn't take long for us to learn the power of words. To do great things or to do evil things. Words that can build up and words that can tear down. And as someone has aptly stated, that words are like bullets. Once you pull the trigger, you can't stop the bullet. Once you've spoken the word, it's out. Another learned result of words, when we're not careful or the words are not carefully chosen, is that once spoken, they can come back to haunt you. And you may have to eat those words later on. So we have to be very careful with our words, don't we? So Psalm 64 and verse 1, the David is speaking here. Uh, this is a reflection on that time when he actually had a real fear concerning Absalom, his son, in the rebellion. Because as a man in his position, a man in his place of power, uh, you make enemies. And he, he figured if his own son Absalom felt this way, then there had to be many, many more who would also come after him and seek after, after his throne. So the scriptures describe the tongue as a two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse, verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So God can, even though we may try to cloak our, our what's the word I'm looking for, our, our thoughts or the intents of our heart, God says, I see them. I, 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 I see what you're trying to do here, trying to cover them or trying to, be clandestine in, in, your, in your intents or your motives. But this psalm written by David is a reflection of the, of the hurtful words of Absalom that were used to steal away the hearts of the men of Israel. And if we can just turn very quickly back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 15, we know that uh, chapters 11 of chapters 12 were the, um, the uh, historical record of Absalom's rebellion the problems that Absalom had, he had to be chased out of the land, or he, let, he, he fled the land uh, for getting even with uh, with uh, mm, 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 Amnon, and uh, for what he did to his sister 
uh, Tamar. And so <clears throat> he has been brought back, but he has been very deceitful, very deceptive. Second Samuel chapter 15 verse 1 says, It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is, one, is, is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath a, a suit or a cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, uh, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That was the, the uh, foundation upon which he was going to uh, steal and take over the throne of his father David. And so Absalom was cunning with his words. And through words was able to enlist Ahithophel, who was David's closest counselor and confidant, but also Bathsheba's grandfather, wife of Uriah, whom David had executed in an attempt to cover his sin of adultery, which Ahithophel knew of. And you read about that in the chapters of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, verse, and chapter 12. And so Absalom's words were self-aggrandizing. He promoted himself above his father, one of the hard things about being a second man in any church is, is to not allow people to come to him for counsel that they may not like to, to get from the pastor. And there had been some great second men. Uh, I'm trying to think what the fellow was of uh, Dr. Lee Robertson, uh, Faulkner. Dr. Faulkner was probably one of the premier second men in, in the United States. And uh, he would redirect them uh, to... Uh, I think it was, what did you say? Uh, Robertson, Dr. Lee Robertson. I was thinking of, uh, anyway, he went to the, Dr. Lee Robertson and uh, so on. So uh, it, it's not easy uh, to be a second man uh, or for that matter, even be a deacon because deacons are really considered second men, so to speak. They're, uh, they don't really have any authority in the church other than any other individual in the church has, has as far as voting for certain things that comes along. But deacons were never... Uh, um, the office of the deacon was never created to control the pastor in the first place. It was to be an aid to the pastor to, to help with the congregation. When the congregation gets so large, the pastor really can't be that personal with them. And so deacons were there to be an assistant to the pastor, if you would. And so here we have a son who probably felt maybe he should have been the one who had the throne. But Aston was forgetting one thing, and that is that God had already chosen who? The wisest man in the world, Solomon. But Absalom didn't like that. He felt that he should have had that throne. And so he was determined he was going to get that throne by hook or by crook. And uh, his, his, he had, uh, become, his heart had become full of hatred. And it manifested itself in his deception and the guile that he had used and he had practiced. And so uh, Absalom's words were self-aggrandizing, meant to destroy his father, uh, that he might one day take the throne. 
Words were Absalom's primary weapons because he knew his father was a warrior and he knew that he was surrounded by warriors and so there was no way that he was going to try to do a physical battle against them. He, uh, certainly until he had at least won the vast popula population of Israel. And so secondly, using flattery, Absalom stole the hearts of the, of, of the people by lying about his father. And thirdly, with lying words, he deceived his father too concerning his actions and his conduct. And so obviously Absalom's rebellion was traumatic to David, as was all the lies of others who were trying to destroy him. So in this psalm, David reveals how deeply he was wounded by this verbal assault and the power of words as well, how we need to understand how we can guard ourselves from the effects of them. And so we live in a day when the lost liberal world sees believers as their enemy. They have, and when you understand this, it begins to make sense to you, and you can deal with it a little bit differently. There are basically two ideologies that exist in the world today. There is a liberal ideology that does not have any part of God or allow God, they don't want God to be any part of their ideology. Our ideology is God. Everything God is our ideology. And we stand in the way. Because the wisdom and the discernment and the knowledge that God provides to those who are students of the word of God, we can see right through the liberal agenda. And so they hate us. They do not like us, even though some may not know the difference yet at this particular point. But there are those who understand that we are a problem to their agenda to bring about their ideology. They have been working. You've heard that word expressed many times called the deep state. Well, they had been working at this for decades. And now when you get the right people in the right place, all of a sudden this stuff begins to come up like vomit. <laughs> I'd like to say a volcano, but I'd rather use the word vomit. Uh, I think it describes them more fully. But it comes up like that anyway. And so we're the ones, we're not just the only ones. There are those who are conservative who have maybe have had some experience with Judeo-Christian background. But they can see certain things that are happening on, on, the, on the horizon, uh, and they will stand. But uh, I believe that the, the uh, liberal ideology, they feel they can take care of them eventually. But you and I as Christians, we got to go. And any country, whether it's the, well, all, all communists and all socialists and all fascist countries have got to get rid of Christians. They have to get rid of any kind of religion that could stand as an opposition to their ideology. And so we're, we're not alone in all this, whether, you're, whether it's a Catholic country who, who would stand up in, in opposition, whether it's in Venezuela or some of those other countries down south uh, in South America. But anyway, be that as it may, we live in a, in a day when the lost liberal world sees believers as their enemy, and they don't use kind words or express kind words of affection toward us. Uh, all you have to do is listen to CNN. You don't have to listen to them very long. But they are very venomous people. And there are some on there uh, who are gay. And of course, that means that they hate anybody Christian who would dare to stand in, in place and say that their lifestyle is, is a sinful lifestyle. And so we had better learn to develop some tough skin and never forget that in the end, they didn't have kind words or affections for Christ either. But I do remember Dr. Wallace, when he was talking to the preacher boys one class, he said, and our challenge in our graduation was that we needed to develop the, uh, the uh, mind of an elephant and the hide of a rhinoceros. He said, because you, you got to have a good memory, 
But you've got to realize that people are going to be throwing barbs at you all the time, whether it's from within the church or from without the church. It doesn't make any difference. And so we have to become thick-skinned but not thick-headed. All right? Because <laughs> there is a difference along the way. Amen? So anyway, number one, words can be used to intimidate. Psalm 64 and verse 1. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Now, there are times that the word fear is, is used, and it means, yeah, terror. Uh, and or it can mean, depending on the context of the verse or the context of the word fear, there it could also mean a reverence, an awe, if you will. But the key word in verse 1 is the word fear. And it is a word that means terror, and there is no alternative. It's terror and or dread. So, and, and as I was going through the um, rise and fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons, you could see how all the rulers, I don't care who they were, but especially in Rome, the Roman uh, um, emperors and stuff, they were constantly scared to death of, for their lives, really, because they knew that someone was going to try to do them in somewhere along the line. That's why... Uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Now, being a cupbearer didn't mean that you brought the cup and gave it to the king. It means that you poured the wine or whatever was going in there. And you drank it first, and if you didn't die, then you could give it to the king, and the king would take it. So, I mean, it was, it was a pretty precarious job. It's, it's not exactly one you'd want to answer to in a, in a want ad if you could be a... So, but anyway, be that as it may. Uh, so, half-truths, past mistakes, and outright lies are oftentimes used to destroy a good man's reputation. Now, there has been no lack of watching this kind of behavior unfold uh, the day that Trump was elected to the presidency. They immediately began to attack him with outright lies, fabricated lies, fabricated situations that they had absolutely no proof of whatsoever, and not for lack of, not for lack of trying. They did everything humanly possible under the law and above the law and outside the law to try to destroy this man by destroying his reputation. And they're still at it because the, the liberals are scared to death of this man. And so it doesn't make any difference as long as they get their way. It's kind of like uh, uh, a kid who has been spoiled all his life and he'll do anything. Well, we'll do, was it the Menendez brothers who killed their parents? Because they didn't want to wait for them to die to get the inheritance. So they decided they'd take care of it, and they killed their parents. Well, you know, to destroy people just so you can get your way is a terrible thing. But not that Trump himself is alien to using words to demean others. That, that's a given. But you know what? He could call me all kinds of names of the books so long as he did everything right and legal. Amen. As long as he made it possible for, for our money to be able to stretch so we could get more bang for our buck and uh, so on. All the things that he did that were really positive. You know what? So what if he called someone a name, all right? At some point in time, he just might grow up and, and get beyond all that stuff there along the way. But uh, that might, again, be his character. But if he was truly saved, uh, then we could only pray that God would help to change his character. But, you know, some of these boneheads out there, I mean, you've got to, you've got to deal with them face to face and nose to nose and tell them, tell them like it is because they don't understand kindness. 
for the most part. But nonetheless, uh, he, was, he was not known exactly to be gentle and kind with his enemies, so to speak. And so we have modern day examples which many people dislike the mean words, but now they're, they're regretting, they'll take the mean words over the difficulties that we're in today. The, uh, uh, the uh, economy and uh, you, you've got six million illegals or more maybe as many as 9 million illegals coming into the United States looking for jobs. Where are these 6 million jobs going to come from? And so no matter how you slice and dice this here, you know there's only one reason they're coming over here is the Democrat needs dummies or the uninformed or the gullible to vote for them. Everybody else is beginning to learn that, hey, that, you know, that's a group of people I wouldn't, I wouldn't vote for. I, I, I'd vote for a scarecrow before I'd vote for any of those guys at this point in time. Anyway, so I'm sure that David had to listen to the endless talk about his affair with Bathsheba. You know, Ahithophel knew about it. Um, Nathan knew about it. I know that some of his soldiers around him knew about it. And so rumor goes around and, you know, the old saying that goes where there's smoke, there's probably fire somewhere. And so I'm sure that there were whispers and uh, tattletales and uh, people making comments here and comments there and so on, even though God had forgiven them. And uh, so even though it was several years earlier when that transpired, the gossip continued. Absalom had continued with his hatred because David seemingly did nothing when his sister Tamar was raped. And so the point is that old hurts seldom heal. Things that are often said, you can't take back, but the words do linger. And that's why many times we need to be very careful, even when we're joking with our spouses, that we don't say things that could be misconstrued or could be thought about later. And uh, so we need to be careful about those things, and as well as with our friends and with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so, especially if, if, if wrongs haven't been made right and forgiveness sought and given. And so, these two events, adultery and the rape of Tam Tamar, in which David did nothing. David appears to be deeply concerned what others may be saying about him, especially his enemies. And so he should have done something about those things. And at least, uh, I know he went before the Lord and he asked the Lord for forgiveness and God set it aside. But David knew he was guilty of the affair with Bathsheba. What he did not know was how extensive the deceitfulness was, nor what was believed by the people, what was believed and what was not believed. So considering the day in which we live and the hatred towards Christ growing and attacks against the word of God as well, how are we to handle this growing dislike and outright hatred among the, among the liberal crowds for Christians? And for believers. I don't really think that the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is one of the most popular among the Democrats in the House. He is there because by divine appointment of God, using enough people to get him in that position to where God could use him. And so if what is being said and there have been nutcases out there who claim that God has spoken to them to do atrocious things in the name of God. And people throw those things up in your face, one thing or another. 
But we need to take such accusations to the Lord and if possible, if we are in, in a transgression, we need to do what we can to make it right. It may mean that we're the ones who have to take the first step. A clear conscience is what I'm dealing with here. But if we have done this to make things right, and others persist, remind ourselves that we have already done this, and remember that asking God in sincerity, he has forgiven us. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as believers that are redeemed of the Lord, we should be spiritually mature enough to take it before the Lord. And if we can make it right, then do what we can to make it right. The apostle, watch, I've got another here, it's a clear conscience. I remember back in the Basic Institute of Youth Conflicts that Peg and I had gone to back in the 70s. And uh, by the time we get done, one of the things that they, they said uh, that, what constituted a clear conscience? That which constitutes a clear conscience is that when you can stand before a group of people and know that there is no one in that group that you have wronged and have not made right. That's a clear conscience. How do you preach if you got someone down here dagger eyes at you and saying you're a hypocrite or you're a liar or you're a deceiver? And so, let's just hold your finger there with your back. But over in Job, I should say back in Job, just a few books back. Well, I'll get there. Come on, come on. In Job, we're going to be looking at Job chapter 31. Interesting. When we're looking at uh, Job 31 verse 23, and on it says there, for destruction from God was a terror to me. And that, that word terror is the same word used uh, back in, uh, in Psalm 64 and verse 1. For destruction from God was a terror to me, and by reason of his highness I could not endure. If I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, Thou art my confidence. If I rejoice because my wealth was great, and because mine hand had gotten much. If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness. And my heart hath been secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand. This also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge. For I should have, deni I should have denied the God that is above. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. And so he's talking there about how we handle people who say wrong things about us, or lie about us, and deceive us. And so the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24 and verse 16 he said, and, here, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Which means, first of all, he made sure that he was careful about what he said, but if he had made a mistake, then he made sure he got it right. When being demonized by lies, we need to continue to combat those lies by continuing to maintain a godly character in our lives and live above the reproaches. And that's what Christ did. Christ set the example. And so Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord even addresses this. And this is part and parcel to the verse that we're often, often uh, 
uh, often quote, you're the light of the world, and so, um, and so on. But beginning there in verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall what? Revile you and persecute you, and shall say all men of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but it shall but if the salt uh, have lost his savor, wherewith wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify God. So when you're being persecuted and you're being reviled, even falsely so, the evidence that you're a child of God is that you handle it in a very godly fashion so that the, those who are persecuting you and those who are reviling you and having said all that they can say and do nothing more than you respond in a godly fashion, there's a demonstration of the work of God because most people would lash out like Donald Trump does from time to time, lash out, verbally speaking. So the lesson here tonight as we close is that we use the words of our protractors, those who, who would revile us or persecute us, to produce spiritual strength and growth rather than to be intimidated or to stumble and falter. First of all, know that you and I are in good company. John 15, verse 18, a couple more chapters we'll be looking here. <clears throat> In John chapter 15, looking at uh, was I going to go, uh, verse 18, uh, there he says here, If the world hates you, you know that it what? Hated me before it hated you. <laughs> so, technically, if you were not a child of God, and if you did not live your life for Christ, the world would have no problem with you. But because you do, the world has a problem. First of all, you serve as, number one, an alternative to their lies, you have the alternative called truth. You have godly wisdom, you have godly knowledge, and all they have is worldly wisdom and worldly knowledge. And so, <clears throat> know that you're in good company, and know that if ye endure, we will have a reward, James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord? that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But he says, behold, we count them happy, which endure. Take it like a trooper, or as Paul would say, quit you like men. Be strong in the Lord. That's the song we sing, and be strong in the Lord. Amen. Well, that's the first verse, and uh, we'll see if we get a couple more verses in next week, or we'll take this one verse by verse, depending on how it plays out. And